2: This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I am joined by Lorna Bracewell, who is the author of Why We Lost the Sex Wars, Sexual Freedom in the Me Too Era. And this is published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2021, I believe. Um, and Lorna is going to tell us a bit about what the sex wars are, um, how they were lost, Um, and possibly how may we we may be able to refight them and have a better outcome, I think is what she tells us in the conclusion. Um, But I'd like to welcome uh, Lorna Bracewell to the New Books Network and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hey, Lorna.
0: Hi, Lily. It's such a a privilege to be here with you. Thank you for having me on. So I first got interested in the feminist sex wars as an undergraduate. um, I I'm 37, just to kind of situate myself historically in time, and I'm also uh, queer. I came out as a lesbian when I was like 18 or 19, and so I was coming out from late 90s, early 2000s into what I now realize is a kind of very specific moment in kind of lesbian and feminist culture and politics, and so when I was introduced to the sex wars as a kind of uh, intellectual scholarly enterprise, it really helped me understand that, that milieu that I was sort of just finding myself embedded in. And, you know, a lot of the, the debates and controversies and conflicts and tensions that I was seeing play out in my, you know, lesbian feminist community and circles that I was running in. Um, yeah. So I read Catherine McKinnon's, you know, toward a feminist theory of state, in some undergraduate course, you know, like temporary political theory course. It was like the two weeks we did on feminism. We read that book and I was like, what? Like (laughs) all this, all this uh, consternation about pornography, about heterosexuality, like there's like a lot of like intellectual heft to this. And not only that, right. It was like one of many positions that were staked out around this. Um, and itself was a subject of a lot of contestation. So anyway, that's how I sort of got intellectually interested in the sex wars. And then, you know, I went on to graduate school and pursued that as my dissertation research.
2: And and you do a lot of what you term yourself excavation in this book, um, in terms of diving into what made up the sex wars. And I'm going to ask you to define that broadly in a moment. But also, you know how we should think about them in context of feminism and being feminist. Um, and so, if you could sort of um, explain to listeners exactly what the sex war is consisted in, because you do spend a lot of time, obviously, about half the book, um, sort of teasing out the different components of it. And obviously, we don't have time to go into each tiny detail, but like what is the overview of the sex wars?
0: Yeah, so the sex wars were a series of debates that started, you know, in the late 1970 or, you know, really before that. There are antecedents to these debates in the radical feminist thought and activism of the the sixties. But you know, really in a in a kind of formal way in the nineteen seventies and they stretch up through the nineteen nineties. And the feminist movement was really divided during this time over a whole range of issues. That pertain to sex and sexuality. Pornography was kind of the marquee issue. Um, you had feminists that were organizing against pornography, um, in organizations like Women Against Pornography or Women Against Violence and Pornography in Media. They thought pornography was, uh, you know, a, the, the blueprints for a female genocide, as you know, some of the more strident anti-pornography feminists put it. Um, But they thought it was a conduit for a deeply misogynistic ideology that ultimately led to great harm uh, to to women in the world and and women's inequality. So you had anti-pornography feminists, but then you also had feminists who um, were offering a very different analysis of the the political implications of pornography, who saw pornography as a potentially liberating avenue of, of sexual expression and sexual empowerment that women because of patriarchy had been sort of excluded from and denied access to. So, um, you know, so that's just one example, but many other issues were on the table during this time too, uh, say to masochism, um, lesbianism and heterosexuality. Um, but, but, you know, just a whole range of, of issues pertaining to sex and sexuality and feminists were not of one mind about what the feminist analysis of these, things should be or what the implications of these things for women's liberation was
2: and you you talk about the fact that while your book is specifically exploring this in the United States that some of this was going on in other places but that there was a real sort of palpable debate and war for lack of a better term that was really happening in the united states in the academy but also to some degree in the streets um obviously there wasn't you know violence in the streets but that the debates were not you know just in rarefied kind of classroom settings
0: no they they make their way there eventually but they originate in you really broad based social movements right um that i that i talk about in the book, like Sam in, uh on the West Coast was a lesbian s organization that really became the, it provided the sort of intellectual seedbed, if you will, for, you know, what we really today think of as like queer theory <laughs> um, in a lot of ways. And, you know, and then of course, I, I mentioned the anti pornography feminist movement, which is a really broad-based national social movement. Like you can go back and you can watch clips of you know, anti pornography feminist leaders on the Phil Donahue show and things like that. So, um, yeah, they they did not start as sort of academic debates, um, but but I think that the way that they come to be remembered often is as these academic debates that have their origins at the Barnard Conference in 1982, right? Um, and that's really what my book is trying to to uncenter um, from our historical understanding of the Sex Wars. I, I want us to look beyond Barnard, as I as I put it. Um, And part of that means looking at the sort of social movement origins of these debates.
2: And in terms of the social movement themselves, the social movement origin of these debates and in the United States in particular, um, one of the obvious critiques that you and I and many people know of second wave feminism was that it was super white um, and super classist. Um, and, And so how does the sex war debate Fit into not only you know sort of feminism as it's rising and cresting, or I don't really want to use this metaphor too much, um, in in the United States, but also in terms of the narrowness of feminism.
0: Yeah. So you know, I I start by kind of maybe pushing back a little and saying, second wave feminism isn't as white as you know we like to pretend it is nowadays. Often, I mean, there's there's valid critiques to be made of the marginalization of women of color and their voices in, in the women's liberation movement. But they were there, <laughs> all right? Um, vying to be heard um and vying to inform the politics of women's liberation. They were just ignored. Um but I think it's really important to to remember that they were there. And they were there in these sex wars debates as well. And you know that's probably the the aspect of my book that I'm most proud of. I have a really, really lengthy chapter that's all about black and third world feminist contributions to the sex wars debates. Um, I talk about the catfight narrative in the book, which is this narrative that reduces the sex wars to the kind of pro-sex versus anti-sex, you know, pro-porn versus anti-porn, pro-censorship versus anti-censorship feminists. And one of the most unfortunate consequences of that catfight narrative is the way it just writes out of the history of the sex wars, these interventions by these black and third world feminists, because they don't fit neatly into any of those categories. They weren't pro-sex or anti-sex. They weren't, you know, pro porn or anti-porn. They were sort of um, intervening amongst anti-pornography feminists. They were active in the anti-pornography feminist movement and trying to uh, encourage critical, thought and activism around the role of race in pornography, rather than just this kind of monistic focus on, on gender and the, the way gender figures in pornography. So they were intervening there. You also see them intervening um, amongst sex radical feminist circles, even at the Barnard Conference itself. Um, you know, people like Cherry Moraga and Martha Quintanales are there, trying to urge their fellow sex radical feminists to think critically about the role of race um, in kind of infusing these linkages between, you know, power and sexuality and, right, how, how racism and race complicate our thinking about BDSM as a sort of practice, right? They are, they are pushing for this analysis, um, but unfortunately, it, it, it doesn't come. Um, So yeah, I I try to just bring to the fore the critical interventions that black and third world feminists were making on all sides of the the feminist sex wars. And I hope you to dispel this idea that the sex wars were just a kind of white feminist concern or that women's liberation was just sort of white feminist concern. Um, It was absolutely not. A lot, a lot of black women um, found great uh, hope and meaning in the women's liberation movement or in the anti pornography feminist movement or the sex radical feminist movement, they were just not able to really bring to fruition the potential that they saw there because of, you know, white supremacy and the marginalization of their voices.
2: And, and so in this context, I want to ask you to sort of lay out some of these basic terms and, and, and that will also bring some of this, this erasure, how that happened into the the discussion. Um, You talk about the anti-pornography feminism and the sex radical feminism, that these seem to be the binaries that you're trying to undo, and I'm not going to ask you to do it in a binary way, um, but can you explain how these became the camps um, that you are desperately trying to um, sort of mush up a bit? (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with this Barnard Conference that we've talked about. So the Barnard Conference happens in 1982. It's organized by Carol Vance and other sort of leading sex radical feminists who have a foot in academia. And they really want to counter the anti-pornography feminist analysis of pornography, but women's sexuality more broadly and the politics of sexuality. And you know, so they're, 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 they're sort of, you know, like low key, not wanting to invite their anti pornography feminist Conrads to present at this conference, because they want the conference to be about something other than, you know, pornography being the blue, pl- the blueprints for female genocide or whatever. Um, so this causes a lot of resentment, and hurt feelings and, you know, uh, amongst anti pornography feminists. And They decide to sort of sabotage the conference and they write letters to the trustees of Barnard College, the president of Barnard College, kind of saying, Hey, just wanted to let you know what the academic coordinator for the you know, scholar of the feminist has planned for this year. They're going to be talking about S and M. They're going to be talking about, you know, the sexuality of children. All these really taboo things, and they're 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 pretty deliberate. I think it's fair to say they're deliberately trying to stir up a kind of sex panic, um, and and cause some static for the the organizers of the conference. And so, anyway, all this kind of blows up, and you end up with a situation where one group of feminists is trying to go to this conference to present and hear papers while another group of feminists is picketing outside. Um, So it's this really dramatic flashpoint in the sex wars. And it comes to to stand in. You know, I I could never say this word. I I write it, but I'm always nervous when I say it. It becomes a kind of synecdoche for the sex wars uh, writ large. And so I think that's the the, the kind of the origins of this idea that the sex wars are this two-sided, internecine, sororicidal, feminist civil war, right? Um, because that's kind of what happened at Barnard. But I try to show in the book how the sex wars are so much more than that, that actually anti-pornography feminists and sex radical feminists shared quite a bit in common. And one of the most important things they shared in common, I argue, is their critical comportment toward the sexual politics of post-war liberalism. And I, I, you know, see both anti-pornography feminists and sex radical feminists as united in this broader feminist effort to question liberalism's uh, portrayal of sexuality as private, as uh, harmless, right, as a kind of a, a, a sphere in which injustice cannot occur because it's you know, kind of concealed in the private, and which, and in which the state has kind of no business intervening. There's no there's no interest there um, for the state to get involved because there's no harm. Um, so, you know, I think that sex radical feminists and anti pornography feminists, in different ways, are really challenging that that liberal conception of sex as as private and and harmless and not a not a domain in which questions of justice should be posed.
2: And and that was one of the, the parts of the book that I thought was really interesting in terms of how you, you sort of tease out this question with regard to liberalism. And again, the term itself has many... As, as you explain in the book very well, has many different meanings um, for us. And and as political theorists, you and I are often thinking about it in a Lockean way. Um, and that's not the most common use of that term. Um, as
0: I've learned right, <laughs> talking about this book and, you know, pre- presenting this book in, in kind of interdisciplinary spaces. Feminist historians are like, what? <laughs>
2: So, what do you mean by liberalism? <laughs> I,
0: I I do mean liberalism as it is understood, right, in kind of political philosophy, political theoretical terms, right? A, a kind of set of ideas uh, orchestrated around, you know, individualism, uh, private property, but also just a, a a larger domain of the private as a kind of sphere. That is beyond state intervention. Um, you know, I mean the liberalism of John Stuart Mill. I mean the liberalism that Marx talks about in "On the Jewish Question." Right? Um, that's that's what I mean by by liberalism. Um, you know, liberalism, I guess, in the broadest sense. <laughs>
2: And, and not when we're talking about like conservatism and liberalism on the political spectrum, per se, although that is something that you do talk about in terms of the another group that sort of came into the sex wars in the 1990s. Um, and so yeah, I'm, super,
0: super confusing cause in America. All our conservative. Well, I shouldn't say all our conservatives these days, but you know, <laughs> um, many of our conservatives are liberals. Right. In this in this philosophical theoretical sense, right? They are committed to individualism. They are committed to this Distinction between the public and the private, the idea of limited government, right? Um, so yeah, it, it it gets really confusing, as I know, because I have to constantly explain this to undergraduates.
2: Oh, oh, believe me, you know. And when I when I when I studied Chinese politics, and everybody, all the liberals are conservatives, and the conservatives are liberals, and I was like, oh my god, just <laughs> really on my head.
0: <laughs> the Maoists are conservatives, right? Because they want to bring things back to the way they used to be.
1: Right? Uh, <laughs>
2: So when we're talking about not specifically the post-war liberalism, which is this kind of what we would talk about in political theory as the private sphere, public sphere sort of domains, um, but in terms of another group that waded into the sex wars in the 1990s that you talk about, who were coming from yet another perspective around the idea of sort of public sexuality and pornography. Can you talk a little bit about that group, which doesn't get as much airplay also?
0: Yeah, no, I'm happy to. Yeah, so I I argue that, you know, when anti-pornography feminism and sex radical feminism first come on the scene, they're doing so to contest this post-war liberal figuration of sexuality as, you know, private um, and all those things I've already said. But what's interesting if you follow um, the relationship of feminism and liberalism as it evolves over the course of the sex wars, what you see is this this changing. So liberals, civil libertarians, right the ACLU, um, folks like that in the in the 70s and the 80s they see anti-pornography feminists as the enemy right They're in league with the Victorians the the blue noses, the conservatives—they're censorious, um, right? All those, all those things. Um, in the in the starting in the 1980s and in the 1990s, and continuing on even today, um, liberals who are sort of committed to that philosophical core that I've been describing, they begin to reappraise anti-pornography feminism, and they actually begin to take on board in elements of the anti-pornography feminist critique of pornography. Um, So you have this, and I was really surprised to discover this in my, in my research, you have this like, just really big, complex, philosophically interesting literature written by liberals, um, defending things like the Dworkin-McKinnon ordinance, which was this anti-pornography feminist ordinance that, um, the movement attempted to have enacted into law in cities all across the country, um. And you know, so like liberals kind of become defenders in a way of the politics of anti-pornography feminism at a time when not even not even feminists were defending anti-pornography feminism anymore, right? Um and so anyway, you have this kind of interesting liberal appropriation of elements of the anti-pornography feminist position. And then you have a similar uh thing happening with sex radical feminists, except the directional arrow points the other way. So you have sex radical feminists who are trying to contest the Dworkin-McKendon ordinance and anti-pornography feminist efforts to regulate pornography. What they do is sort of strategically deploy the rhetoric of liberalism, civil libertarianism, ideas about privacy, ideas about the freedom of expression, ideas about individual liberty, which they had been contesting in the, in the 70s and the early 80s. But they begin to kind of strategically don themselves in this rhetoric because they know it's gonna be popular and compelling and persuasive because it's America and we all you know kind of uh, subscribe, whether we know it or not to these these liberal assumptions. and they they are successful, right? Um, and so you know people like Nan Hunter and Sylvia Law, who form this feminist anti-censorship task force to, to contest the Dworkin-McKinnon ordinance. They're doing this very deliberately and strategically, right? Um, but you have you have other liberals who I like to say aren't in on the joke, right? So you have like Nadine Strassen, right, who is the president of the ACLU um, and a, a just committed uh, ideological civil libertarian. She begins to take on elements of the sex radical feminist analysis of the politics of sexuality and fold them into this larger civil libertarian framework in a way that proves really transformative of liberalism and its sexual politics. So anyway, that's, you know, the bulk of the book is me kind of tracing out these surprising, improbable twists and turns that the relationship of feminism and liberalism takes over the course of the sex wars.
2: And you start the book and you end the book also by talking about like the, I really don't want to use this term, the weird bedfellows of the Me Too movement Um, in terms of like how we see the echoes of the sex wars in who is critical of the Me Too movement and who is on board in the Me Too movement, because it's kind of mirroring a lot of the same talking points um, as the sex wars did, at least in the the catfight narrative. Can you explain a bit about that?
0: Yeah, this kind of brings us to the part of the title, the lost part, like why we lost the sex wars. Um, ultimately, I conclude that these improbable developments in the relationship of feminism and liberalism that unfold over the course of the sex wars are not for the good. Um I think that this is uh that the influence of this liberal tradition on these radical feminist critiques of the liberal tradition has ultimately diluted um feminist sexual politics to a great degree and, and, and weakened it. And I, I argue you see this playing out in, in the politics surrounding me too, where the Me Too movement, which, you know, it's not perfect, it's flawed, it's, um, you know, it, it over amplifies the voices of privileged white women celebrities and, you know, underplays the voices of, you know, women in working class jobs, women of color, like all those critiques are really valid. But I think at the end of the day, what the Me Too movement is attempting to do is contest deeply entrenched structures of patriarchal power that operate through sex and sexuality, right? Um, it is trying to contest the conditions that lead to the sexual exploitation of women, right? Um, and feminists, progressives, leftists, right, um, kind of react to this broad-based mass movement that is contesting these patriarchal structures with a high degree of ambivalence, right? Right. Um, And in some cases, just not even ambivalence, like, you know, Margaret Atwood, you know, author, celebrated author of The Handmaid's Tale and, you know, sort of feminist public intellectual that of note, uh, she compares the Me Too movement to the Casa Nostra, to the Italian mafia, right? Um, And she worries that it's kind of riding roughshod over, you know, due process rights and civil liberties and... And she's far from alone. I don't mean to single her out, but, you know, um, many, many other, uh, you know, public feminists um, and progressives adopt this line toward Me Too. And what's surprising is if you go and you look at publications like the National Review, you see that conservatives are saying the same thing, right? Um, people like David French, people like Mona Charin are sounding very, very similar concerns Regarding the Me Too movement and how it's a threat to individual liberty and due process rights and all these cherished liberal principles, and you know, so I argue that how did we get in this position where feminists and conservatives are both wary of a, a social movement contesting the conditions that lead to women's sexual exploitation? Um, like, how how did how did we get to this place? And I argue it it has to do with this mis understanding of the history of the sex wars and the kind of moral that we've taken from the sex wars because if, if all you think about when you think about the sex wars is the catfight narrative where you have kind of good pro-sex feminists who you know love freedom of sexual expression and who want everybody to just be able to like have a good time and do what they want pitted against you know dowdy no fun uh Puritanical, old-fashioned, uh, school marmish, anti-pornography feminists, um, and 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 you know, and then you think, oh well, thank the feminist goddess that you know the 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 good white hat, sex positive feminist won, right? If that's your kind of understanding of the sex wars, which I think is the understanding that the catfight narrative encourages to have, then you're gonna react to the Me Too movement in exactly that way, right? Because it does not make it does not give pride of place to the freedom of individual expression or you know, expressive liberty. It does not give give pride of place to these sort of conventional liberal concerns. It gives pride of place to contesting the structural conditions that lead to grave sexual injustice, right? Um, so so I, I that's why I, that's what I'm trying to do by revisiting the history of the sex wars and complicating it and showing how, these feminist positions started as really full-throated, interesting, important critiques of the sexual politics of liberalism because I worry that right now in our B two moment, people think that the sexual politics of feminism is the sexual politics of liberalism, that there's been this kind of, um, you know, con- confusing of the two. Um, and so I'm really trying to like pick those apart and retrieve for contemporary Feminists, these radical analyses of sexual politics that exist far beyond kind of liberal convention,
2: and and the, the radical analyses, as you say, of sexuality is sometimes connected to and not always clearly um, to feminism, and and so again we have you know the seventies was the sexual revolution. But that is and is not connected to, you know, sort of the second wave. And, and so how does how and, and you talked about this a little bit when we started in terms of your own your own biography, um, how does sort of an understanding of changing our thinking about sexuality, how does that fit into our understanding also of feminism?
0: Mm. That's a great question. I, I worry that, um, that one of the, one of the results of the sex wars and our misunderstanding of the history of those debates is that feminists sort of backed away from the politics of sex and sexuality. Um, and you you can even see this to some extent in sort of scholarly spaces and the way we carve up academic disciplines, right? Like, um, we have a lot of like, you know, centers for women's gender and sexuality studies. Um, But the idea is that like the people doing the sexuality studies are like queer theorists or people in LGBTQ politics. And they're not necessarily feminist political theorists or feminist historians or something like that. Um, And I think that's really unfortunate because I think that, that, you know, while I agree with, with Gail Rubin's kind of signature, a point in her very influential essay, "Thinking Sex," that feminism should be the kind of privileged domain for the analysis of sex and sexuality. Right? Um, feminists have important contributions to make in our in our thinking about the political implications of sex and sexuality. So I I, I hate to see feminists sort of abandon that that terrain. Um, and you know, but I fear that that to some extent they did after in the in the aftermath of the sex wars. Um, I've kind of lost my train of thought. <laughs>
2: in response well, to your question. I mean I, I think you 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 are talking a bit about the fact that it, it the idea of studying sex and sexuality is not something that is just for biologists or psychologists. That that and and, and to some degree it, it does get put into this, you know, gender feminism sexuality studies lo, locus for academic study, but it's also part of it is part of politics um and and so i i guess i was just sort of asking you to perhaps meditate on the idea of why sex and sexuality itself divorced potentially from feminism should be Mm. something that we do pay attention to in the public sphere it's not just a private thing
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I think that's like a signature feminist insight, right? That 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 sexuality is deeply political, as you put it. It's not just biological, or as the Freudians, you know, would, would maintain, it's not just psychological or, you know, um um or, you know, maybe as some political scientists would maintain, it's not just for kind of cultural studies or, you know, people who study literature, right? Um no, it's like deeply, deeply political. Um and feminism, I think, was was the origin of that important insight that has, of course, proven tremendously influential um, on you know, things like queer theory, things like LGBTQ politics. Um, so yeah, yeah, se- sex and sexuality are are, are political. I mean, they're, they're power is implicated in them. Um, you know, if you think about you know the, the kind of politics of reproduction and the political implications of reproduction, there's a whole lot of public policy um, that that goes into. Influencing right sex and sexuality and managing birth rates and things like that. Those are those are signature uh, you know matters that the state is concerned with. Um,
2: Yes, we've just seen China change its policy because they want to have more more Chinese children. And you know, in the post pandemic period, there's been a very decline, steep decline in birth rates, particularly. And now
0: you're reading all these you know hot takes, raising alarms about that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that sex and sexuality are domains in which power figures. And because power is there, political theorists, political scientists, people who think about power um, need to be there, too.
2: So now that you've you've talked about how the sex wars were lost, but we're perhaps fighting a different battle um, now. uh, What else are you working on?
0: Oh uh, well, it, it's more like what else do, should I be working on? <laughs> um I I'm kind of like suffering from some pandemic brain. I'm finding it hard to sit down and 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 write. Um but no, I I've kind of turned my attention to similar themes but in a different historical moment. I'm looking at Victoria Woodhull, uh, who's a 19th century, you know, suffragist, socialist, um all around interesting character um, and I I started by just being kind of curious about Woodhull because she is invoked on all sides of these sex wars debates in the 20th century if you go and you look at you know intercourse by Andrea Dworkin who's a leading anti- pornography feminist she's got an extended discussion of Victoria Woodhull in that in that book and kind of holds Woodhull up as you know a political and ideological ally right? And then, if you go look at um, the conference proceedings for the Barnard Conference, and you look at some of the contributions there, particularly from feminist historians of sexuality, um, Judith Walkowitz and people like that, they're talking about Victoria Woodhull, and they're holding her up as a sort of sex radical feminist avant la right? Um, so, I that kind of made me interested in Woodhull that she was celebrated by all sides in the sex wars. So, I just started reading as much of her her primary textual material, of which there is a lot I've learned, um, as I can. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, what's of interest and of value there. And one of the first things that I've kind of seized on and what I'm trying to, or should be trying to turn into an article right now, is uh, um, her, her thinking about motherhood and the political role of mothers and what I'm kind of calling her feminist maternalism. I think there's something really unique and interesting about it. It's quite different from what other feminists in the 19th century were saying about motherhood's relation to politics. She's not doing the Republican motherhood thing that many suffragists were doing at the time. Um, but I also think that 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 it's quite different from you know what we might think of as our feminist maternalism today. I think that that the way in which Woodhull politicizes motherhood could be useful to to contemporary feminists, particularly you know, the right is really, really good at politicizing motherhood and you know maternal identity and you know ideas about maternal duty. They're really, really good, and women, particularly white women, respond to it, right and i I worry that that feminists are not engaged enough are not uh making those appeals to mothers um as 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 forcefully and as vocally as, as I think they might need to 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 get in there and compete with the messaging from the right. So I think Woodhull might be helpful in that kind of a project. So that, that's what I'm thinking about. That's what I'm writing about. If anybody has any thoughts on any of that, I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> Tell me what I should be reading.
2: <laughs> well, if if it does turn move from an article to a book, I'd love to have you on the podcast again to talk about it. <laughs> in, um, in ten years from now,
0: maybe. <laughs> Whenever whatever. <laughs> uh,
2: and is there a brick and mortar store with an online presence that you would like to give a shout out to, to have people buy your book?
0: I feel like a terrible person. I don't have one like queued up. I don't. Okay. I don't know. We'll Just
2: tell them to go to the University of Minnesota or website.
0: Yes, go to the University of Minnesota Press website and, and order it from there. There used to be a wonderful feminist bookstore in Gainesville, Florida, that I would have loved to, to plug, but it's, it's closed, like many feminist bookstores have in
2: the past decade. Um, well, thank you, Lorna Bracewell, for joining me today to talk about why we lost the sex war, sexual freedom in the Me Too era. And this is published by University of Minnesota Press. And you can purchase it at the University of Press website and any place else you might want to buy a book. Thank you for joining me, Lorna. Thanks for having me. My pleasure.